Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On The Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Right, we on. Oh, we're on. Welcome. Sorry about that. My delay there. I'm a little rusty on vacation after a couple of weeks. Anyway, this is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show, and I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz, is on the phone, I believe. Dr. Fred, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? I sure can, loud and clear. Great. And I also have certified financial planner professionals, Ryan Repco and David Rudy, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call in with your questions. I'm having trouble with my iPad here, scrolling. Call in your questions at 217-356-9397. You can text us at the Castle Heating, just bear with me, Castle Heating and Cooling text line 3515357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor, and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, morning, guys. Dr. Fred, how have you been? Just fine. And you're traveling? Yeah, it's been a while. You're still traveling? Right. Well, it's good to... Right. It's but good. I, I think we missed last week. We did. Away, and well, so it's correct. Been, it's been quite a while since I've been on the, uh, the show. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure you won't be as rusty as I am. Anyway, uh, well, there's a lot in the news, Fred, but... You know, obviously, other than this uh, little war thing, potential war thing that's going on, but outside of that, just domestically, inflation is certainly becoming a stubborn problem, and it looks to me like it's going to continue to be a stubborn problem. Um, and it seems like, you know, the Federal Reserve is talking about doing maybe 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent increase, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine times, kind of a gradual. They seem to be aligning with that school of thought that, says the economy is this day maybe too weak to sustain a rapid increase in interest rates, so maybe it's better to go slow and gradual than shock and awe. That's that's my that's my read on what I'm reading from the out of the Fed. What do you think? Right, I, I actually have uh, uh, changed my opinion in the last uh, month or so. Uh, if people remember, I thought the inflationary situation was a, a problem, but a, a transitory problem, would more or less solve itself, but. Given a um, uh, kind of uh, uh, guidance from uh, all across the spectrum of economists, I think it's fairly clear now that the economy is, in fact, overheating. It's kind of a strange situation. You have Paul Krugman on the left, uh, Lawrence Summers, just sort of a, a, a more conservative Democrat, and then you have uh, Taylor, John Taylor, who's famous for the Taylor Rule, all saying that the economy actually is overheated, a combination of... Uh, a vast expansion of the money supplies plus something different, which was the uh, really big increase in spending uh, a year ago or so because of the, the crisis and led to uh, considerable inflationary pressure that simply won't go away uh, by itself. And I think also the, uh, the, the president is saying that, well, it's just a, a problem of monopolies and uh, greedy businesses taking advantage of the situation is uh, not true. Uh, businesses may be greedy, but they're always greedy, and they're not uh, just greedy when, when you have a situation like this. So I think something has to be done. I think the question now is whether this gradual approach that you mentioned is going to be sufficient, and, and it's kind of a fine-tuning process. What we'd like to do is to uh, rein in the inflationary pressure without causing a big decline in the economy, and that kind of fine-tuning is always a goal, but it's not always easy to to achieve. So I think we're going to be in, to, in some uh, kind of challenging situations now in the next uh, several months. Well, it would seem to me that, you know, this better to be slow and gradual was only going to make things worse. I mean, worse. It just gives the investors and I think the public a green light to take advantage of the uh, incredibly cheap financing. And that only makes inflation and harder to control in the future because it increases the incentive to borrow money and buy things. And it decreases the uh, basically the incentive to hold on to money. So there's no real demand for all this surplus $4.3 trillion that's in the system. And I think to me, it's the money supply stupid and that, you know, but 
when the administration or most politicians don't understand what creates inflation, then they don't. They're certainly not going to be able to stumble upon the cure. But it, it looks like it's it looks like to me that they're 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 screwing this up. And my view now right. is, I think they it, do need to get- and Fred, think about how back in the seventies, it took the Fed ten years to get inflation under control, and the only way they did that is because Volcker had basically the green light to increase the federal funds rate beyond the inflation rate and i don't i don't know about you but i don't see the political uh appetite to do that today not at all and i think the to a certain extent the uh the federal reserve has become more politicized and again this is uh it's always an election year it seems like but this is obviously a challenging time for the for the democrats and there are people who are being appointed to the federal reserve board that probably are uh, not necessarily as uh, hawkish about inflation as as in the past. So I think it's going to be a, a challenging kind of situation. But again, it may not be possible to have the the so-called soft landing. Now, ideally, what you'd like to do is to have the Fed orchestrate uh, higher interest rates in, in a, a kind of subtle way that was uh, rein in the economy without causing a, a big reduction in uh, overall um, output, but that may or may not be possible. So I think we are in for some challenging uh, times in the next few weeks. Yeah, I think. I think also it, it's not we're not in the uh, the seventies uh, scenario yet, but we want to avoid getting there. That's the main thing. Right. I think they've just waited way too long for this, and uh, you know when holding on to money becomes like a hot potato. Nobody wants to hold on to it, and uh, so you know better to go out and borrow and spend. And I think that's, I mean, look at the price of nominal price of used cars in the last two years have nearly doubled. I mean, I'm not suggesting that by itself is the definition of inflation, but it's certainly when you look at almost everything going in, up in prices, not at the same magnitude, but in unison, that suggests to me we just have way too much money in the system and not enough demand. But again, uh, <laughs> there's just too much money sitting around in, in bank accounts right now, and there's no demand to hold it. I think originally, Fred, I suspect when the when when all this money supply was increased by such a huge amount, I think during COVID and during the panic of COVID, I think people were kind of happy to just you know have money laying in their checking and savings accounts. But I think that I think that with the economy becoming stronger, I think that's eased quite a bit. And I just don't I just don't I just think this is a simple supply and demand issue. Of money, how much of a role do you think right. that the like limited supply of certain things is playing in inflation as well? Because I, I I'm just thinking like I ordered a new computer and it's been a couple months just waiting on on parts and things. Right. And I know there are a lot of different areas of of the economy or the world that are just struggling to keep up to actually produce the goods that people want. What I mean, do you think, does Fred? That eventually, work itself out. Well, no, I think that the point, I think David's point, is uh, important an important part of it. Uh, most difficult situations in the past have been uh, what you might call lack of aggregate demand, that the economy is slumping because people aren't spending enough. Uh, the COVID situation was quite different. It was a supply-induced situation where uh, you know restaurants weren't open, uh, all kinds of things were happening where people couldn't spend their money. So adding aggregate demand when you can't spend it is kind of a, a classic uh formula for inflation. So I think uh, David's point is really important that people couldn't go out and spend their money. Uh, so what could they, what could they spend it on? They could spend it on items like used cars or new cars or computers or whatever it might be, but they can't spend it on services. So I think that's aggravated the situation. That will tend to uh, uh, diminish over a period of time. It's going to take some time for that to happen. I, I noticed after spending two weeks in Florida in, in, a, in a nice area, but the price to rent a place was at least 20% higher than it was last year. And I was talking to the people down there and they said, that's if you can find a spot. They said demand it for, right. you know, that makes sense. We have a lot of pent up demand and then there's only a limited amount of supply. Um, what do you think the Fed needs to do, Fred? Is this, this, is, is this a matter of uh, basically reduce the bank's ability, bank's ability to lend money uh, by shrinking the federal balance sheet, you know? Uh, you know, well, I think it's necessary to do that. The question is just how fast. I think there's a uh, most people like, uh, like like we're talking today, and a lot of economists think it should be done a little bit more uh, quickly than the Fed seems to be 
uh, moving, and then there's always a danger that that may have an impact on the economy, but that's the, the price you have to pay in some some cases. It also raises the uh, issue that I'm sure uh, you're dealing with, that there's really no place to hide for investors right now. It looks like the stock market's um, obviously been down uh, somewhat, uh, but the typical thing, well, why not switch the bonds? That's not a very a good option right now. So again, uh, the, the choices are limited and generally the, the, the advice that you give is simply hold tight and, and uh, uh, stay where you are and that's probably in the long run the best strategy. Well, until somebody comes up with a better strategy that's, you know, reliable other than, you know, even in with inflation, if you're in short-term high-quality bonds, you know, and, uh, and you basically you kind of have these ladders of maturities as inflation rises, we're going to we're obviously going to see increase uh, in interest rates and your bonds are going to quickly, you know, uh, mature and roll into the newer higher rate bonds. So there's going to be some protection there. There's quite a bit of protection there. Right now there's not just because interest rates are just so artificially low. I mean, when you have inflation running at seven, seven and a half percent. In fact, it would strike me that if the Fed came out and surprises people, or maybe it wouldn't be a surprise at this point, and maybe in March increase interest rates by a half percent or more, and then over the next five or six or seven months increases it by a quarter of a percent or more, we're still not going to be tight. I, st- I still wouldn't classify that as tight conditions because we-, we wouldn't even be up to the inflation rate at that point. Right. So people are going to be facing a, a negative real return on their uh, on their new investments for a while, not, not their stock investments, their fixed income kind of investments. Well, but isn't that uh, that incentive? Then, Fred, is that not an incentive to, I, I'm not, why hold these things? I go out and buy stuff uh, now before the prices go up. Uh, it's, it strikes me that this is right. all circular. <laughs> and and right. we, we seems like right. we all know what the problem is. Uh, there just doesn't seem to be any appetite to really address it. I mean, you know, we we can be sick and not want to take the medicine because it might make us sicker for a while, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I thought, I like you, Fred, I thought it was transient um, until I started, uh, when I, but, except I just have not seen the Federal Reserve do anything to back off the money supply. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's becoming concerning to me that we may have a longer term problem. Right. Well, I'm Mr. Optimist. Now, it, it, yeah. And the Federal Reserve is uh, moving into areas their their primary job is uh, two things to promote uh, price stability and and uh, high employment but now they're getting into all kinds of other issues about um, equity and um, environmental issues and things of that sort which they simply don't have the capability of, of dealing with so uh, I think the the, the bed is torn for these kind of political objectives uh, I guess some of the old, old line kind of things, their basic idea of a central bank is to maintain a sound money supply. So the, the, it's not easy being on the Fed now with all, of, all the demands coming from different directions. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's just been overly politicized, and, and this is what you get when, when that mixes with it. So I probably sound grouchy today, and I'm Mr. Optimist, but <laughs> I'm getting a little frustrated that, that, that – when you hear the administration and politicians not even understand what the cause of this is, it's, it makes me a little pessimistic that they'll that they can come up with a cure. When well, exactly, like with the, the president saying that uh, inflation is uh, just caused by uh, all of a sudden businesses being greedy. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That's well, not, it's, it's idiotic. Not they're not greedy. They're always greedy. If they were greedy in the past, they would have done it before. So it's not just a matter of of uh, lack of competition or, or uh, bad businesses. It's more more uh, systemic and it has to be dealt with. Uh, Fred, that, that would have to be the world's largest conspiracy. <laughs> that they all get together and decide we're all in unison going to increase prices. So that's, again, that's why I've not, I've moved from, like you, maybe for different reasons, maybe this is some of the same reasons, I've moved from, this is probably going to be a stickier issue. And of course that has imp- implications for investors. Um, you know, before the show, Fred, uh, a gang of the WDWS, you know, the WDWS gang were asking me questions about inflation and, you know, what to do. I said, well, I'm 62. The typical retiree now is 62. And over my 62 years, I've seen the stock market, you know, ownership of the great companies of America increase by a factor of 82. I've seen the dividend income stream increase by a factor of 30 and I, it, all during that time the inflation's increased by a ninefold factor and 
Well, I don't know how much relief that gives people in the near term. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today because Morningstar, Rath and Keller from Morningstar kind of studied this issue. What's the impact of inflation uh, for retirees? And, and the good news is, is, is there are concerns, but he's not overly concerned. And I'm not either. I mean, there's, there's, there's ways to deal with it, and we'll, we'll be talking about that. And Dave, uh, from an inflation or Ryan, uh, I know dimensional fund advisors over the years is they tend to dip into this. Um, what's their and their I call them you know it's a Nobel Prize winning think tank, so I respect their views. Do they have anything that they're been promoting? Any ideas? Yeah, I think their their overall conclusion is based in ground and research that after looking over the past thirty years or so of performance. Uh, they saw that there was no overarching theme or direct connection with um, there being high inflation to declines in the stock market. Uh, maybe there's some times where you, you can see overlap and people then might be quick to make a jump and say, well, there's, there's inflation, stock returns must then equal bad performance, but that's not actually what the data shows. And I think I think anybody just kind of automatically goes or is geared towards the negative and they just assume the worst and maybe it's like a, a human like preservation you know tactic it's like well i have to protect i have to hunker down i have to do something um but the data actually doesn't support that theory which i think just arming yourself with some of this knowledge this research can be very very powerful because it might keep you from doing the ultimate worst thing at the wrong time of maybe selling out of your investments or trying to make a change or trying to do something in a period where maybe as in most periods, the best advice is to not do something. I think so. And, you know, we look back to the 70s and 80s, early 80s. Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty, really tough time for the American stock market. So if you were just purely invested in large cap U.S. stocks, where so many people seem to favor over the last five or 10 years. Um, but investors that were diversified during that period of high inflation and low returns for the U.S. stock market fared a lot better. Value stocks did well. Small value stocks did well. Small companies did well. International stocks shot the light out. So I'll, I think I think we're headed. If if my inflate if I'm if my suspicions about inflation is more sticky, I suspect we're going to find that being diversified in some of these other areas over the next ten years is going to be crucial. Uh, that's the lessons from the seventies, and the other lesson from the seventies you. You probably need to have, and, and of course, that doesn't mean that the next 10 years look like this, but the lessons from the 70s, if there are any to take, is a little bit of higher stock market exposure kind of made sense too uh, than your standard. That seemed to provide some offset. But you guys read, uh, gave me that article about from Rathenkeller, I think is his name. Uh, yeah, Rathenkeller from Morningstar. And he kind of was interested in the impacts of inflation for retirees. What if you get in, so let's say you're a newly minted uh, retiree just in the last couple of years or you're contemplating it now. Um, he, does, he seems to be not overly concerned about that issue because uh, we all know about this sequence of risk issue that we talk about. You know, on the front end of retirement, horrible returns or really bad returns are different for retirees that are in the decumulation phase than they are for people that are just buying and holding an investment and not spending from it. Uh, that's just because if you if too much of your portfolio is in the stock market and the stock market goes into a large decline at the beginning, now you're forced to sell into a lower balances and potentially sell into your stock positions, potentially. And so there's always that concern, and uh, so inflation is this one more layer of concern, but he doesn't seem to be overly concerned about that does he to you guys you know i mean one of the things he talked about uh was well this is one of the things i talked about earlier if you're in, if you're uh fixed income producing securities are high quality in short term they're going to be a beneficiary of higher interest rates mm -hmm. and then as i talked about earlier why it's not perfect and you can have some really lumpy bad periods on the front end of inflation but Stocks, you know, companies have, or at least many companies have purchasing, you know, pricing power. And we're seeing that right now. We're seeing all the major companies have the ability, and it doesn't seem to be having a real negative impact on earnings. So there seems to be this ability to increase prices, and that's good for shareholders. So that seems to, that seems to buffer some of this inflation concern. Uh, 
Yeah, it, uh, it gives a bit of an offset, I think, if anything. So I think that's you, a way to put it. Yeah, like if you if you are an, an investor, an owner of the great companies of America and the world, you're participating in some of this. You know, yes, you are going to be paying more yourself, but you're also going to be potentially realizing more uh, possible gains because of this price appreciation. Uh, so it is. It cuts both ways, obviously, for someone who's an investor. So it's not a panic issue, mm-hmm. but as he says at the bottom of it, what we do know, however, is an inflationary uptick carries the potential to cause long-term damage. The longer that such event can be postponed, the better. So it's yeah. not ideal, but it's not running for the hills. But naturally, fortunately, uh, at least in this spell, this downturn, if you look at a globally diversified portfolio, you might find yourself down somewhere in the 5 6 7% versus 9 or 10% for the S&P 500, you know, large mm-hmm. U- U.S. stocks. Uh, a 60-40 global portfolio might be down 4% uh, through Friday. So from its all-time highs, or from year-to-date anyway. And that's not... So really, when you think of all the things that are going on, the potential war uh, in the Ukraine or some type of problem there, combined with these really high inflation readings that we haven't seen for the 40s, it's it's really the market overall has been pretty sturdy, I think. I agree. And, and I think really the, the whole point of Roth and Keller's article is that you, you should at least be diversified, one, and you shouldn't have, as a, a new retiree or, or early retiree, have an overwhelmingly large amount of money towards all stock equity positions. So you have room to buffer in the event that you get that just set of conditions where you are getting that decline on a big decline. He's not talking about this decline, Paul, right? For our, for our listeners, right? We're not oh, talking about 6% course. decline. We're talking about a 40%, 50% decline, like right. a really big market decline event. I liken that back to 2008, 2009. And so like that's really what I think his, his article is really kind of addressing is if you do get one of those really large, unfortunate events that do show up, on the front end of maybe a 30 plus year retirement, that has dramatic impact. Um, but there are certain ways you can easily hedge against that by if you have a, a serious consideration of bond holdings, maybe you have two or three years worth of, of needed income, uh, non-discretionary income that you need to have show up so you can eat, live, pay your bills, maybe have a little bit of fun along the way, you have that stored in bond holdings, then you can pull from and distribute assets out of the bond sh- side of things to allow the time of those stock positions, which are temporarily down, maybe like I say, 40-50%, to recover. So you're not eating the chicken, you're only eating the eggs. Um, so eat, that, eat the eggs, not the legs, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that a new Paulism? <laughs> no, that's a Jimmy Johnism, actually. Right. <laughs> He's always talked about how important it is to you know eat the eggs and, and sort of don't eat the chicken. He just shortened it to eat the eggs, not the legs. Yeah, okay. Kind of makes sense. Uh, well, one one other point that uh, always comes up here is that uh, there's no really close correlation with, between bad things happening, uh, wars and things of that sort, and the stock market. Uh, when uh, something happens like that, 9-11, there's always uh, uh, articles about what happened after the beginning of World War Two uh, and uh, 9-11 and so on, and bad things are not directly correlated necessarily with uh, bad performance on the stock market. So even though, you know, COVID uh, two years ago looked like a really uh, catastrophic kind of thing, uh, it didn't reflect itself in the stock market. So again, it's not to say that uh, things won't be bad because of the Ukraine, but that's not a, a necessary kind of outcome. In, in fact, there's pretty good history that shows that, you know, we've had these types of situations before, um, you know, like when it just, this standoff kind of reminds me of when there all of a sudden was no war in 1937. Uh, when Nazi Germany, you know, you know, wanted to f- over the, Su- I think it's called Sudetenland, uh, or with the USR in 1962. Oh, okay. I'm glad. Sudetenland. <laughs> yeah. So that happened, and that happened, and then I think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis with Russia in 1962. In both of those instances, the market went down, and all the, you know, the panic about 10 percent, like it, like pretty similar to what the broad market's gone down here, but after. You know, they kind of were solved. The market after 1962, the market went into a three-year bull market. I don't think a lot of people recognize that. And and after the Germany affair in 1937, the stock market ran up 20 percent. I think you know, there's so many people that have these sell orders that are, you know, that are pessimistic about what's going on. As soon as there's hints, even hints that there's going to be peace, those things get eaten up, and it can really, it can really lead to 
what for most people probably unexpected pretty significant gains so it's not i don't think we have to be well and that just reminds me pessimistic of, on that i always tell people you can't just <laughs> distill things down to like one thing moving the market it's sometimes temporarily yes like covid was obviously driving the market in march of what 2020 um, but generally speaking, you can't just say, well, if this one event happens, then the market's going to do this. It's just not that that simple. There's millions of different things that are impacting stock returns. And the fact that stock markets are forward-looking messes with people's brains, too, because a lot of the things that people are concerned about today are already priced into the market. So that doesn't really tell you much going forward. Um but yeah, you just can't point to one thing, and and even with inflation, it reminds me of that. It's okay. We've talked about you know inflation may be here to stay a little bit higher than average inflation, but you can't say in periods of high inflation, stock returns will do this. Correct. And that's exactly what that dimensional article was showing. Was look, they separated uh, basically historical data into periods of low inflation and periods of high inflation. What they found is in both of those types of periods, the stock market still, on average, had positive returns, even positive inflation-adjusted returns, although slightly lower inflation-adjusted returns when inflation was higher. Um, so it just gets back to, again, you can't time the market. I mean, it, and it, you always too say, many Dave, things that impact it. And you always – you always seem to circle back that almost every question you get from somebody is a market timing related issue. For sure. And I think fundamentally people want the returns of the market without the risk. And the way that you would theoretically be able to do that is if you could predict when the market was going to get go down and avoid it, then you could just be invested during the positive periods. Like obviously that's a very attractive idea, but it's just not something that anyone's really been able to figure out how to do in practice. And it, and it turns out it's irrelevant. The need to do that is irrelevant. Again, I look at my last 62 years on this planet Earth with the stock market going up 82-fold, dividends up 30-fold, and inflation up 9-fold. It's, it's really what Ryan said is sometimes, sometimes the hardest thing, but the best thing to do is nothing. Just leave things as they are. You don't want to react to current events. We're talking like as if the market's down a lot, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's almost laughable that we're having this, but when you have all these things in the background, I think, I think a 9% decline in the broad U.S. market from its highs almost seems to get magnified as if it's worse than it actually is because, well, what about this war? That could make it worse. And what about inflation? That could make it worse. The boogeymen come out and they right. magnify the emotions. And I think that can be the real undoing, which is why, of course, we constantly remind our clients that there's no free lunches here, that... The reason we expect over our lifetime, not over next week, not over next year, though three quarters of the years you would expect a positive return, is we don't want any of our clients to get surprised by perfectly normal cyclical downturns. Because as I've said so many times, mother is the, uh, surprise is the mother of panic. And when, just when people panic, it's too late. There's, there's no way to inoculate people once the disease of panic has struck. And that's why we spend so much time on this radio show. You know, almost probably seems like, oh, yeah, about the times things are really getting good. There goes those mean guys on, on the money show that are saying, hey, be ready for bad stuff. Not predicting it. So I want to be clear. Uh, but just anticipating that the reason we expect these higher uh, real returns adjusted for inflation over our lifetime is precisely because those returns are unpredictable. And, and you know, we've Paul, talked- you, you, you use the, you use the uh, example of the, of the cross-town bus, uh, a, a 10% correction or yeah. 20% downturn bear market is not a surprise. It's really uh, the fact is the bus may have been late for the last uh, – few years, right. but they come and it should be no surprise. So again, uh, like you said, we're talking about a 10% decline as if it were a, a major thing, but it's something that we would uh, be surprised if it didn't happen every so often. I think it's because this one, uh, this, this correction, uh, maybe because it's been so quiet for so long. A couple of radio shows back, I talked about it had been like 300 and some odd days since we've had a 10% correction or something like that. Been a long time where we've really learned to expect over the last 50 years uh, some type of temporary decline, even in a positive year of about 14% on average. Right. Yeah. And, so, and ahead, one Dave. thing that like I, I keep reminding myself is like, 
you know, we talk about trying to like bring the tensions down, pe- get people to think before they react and like trying to inoculate before people have already gone into panic. One article that I was reading is about like the true output in the, the economic output of, of Ukraine. It's virtually none. So yes, there is the, the threat of maybe some uh, invasion or maybe even a full-blown war, but the economic impact is really going to be borne by, by people panicking and not by disruption in production and output and significant declines in the goods that we want to be able to ordinarily buy. Uh, this was a, re- uh, a research article out of Dimensional Fund Advisors as well. Um, so they were just kind of reminding us that, you know, yes, this event possibly may exist, but the actual economic impact may be very, very minimal, if if anything, at best. How about some perspective here, right? <laughs> well, and a little bit of perspective? You know, we've talked about this in the past, but people don't always think about the risks of being out of the market. They think of the risks of being in the market. Well, if I'm, I stay invested and then we do have a big market decline, regardless of what the cause is, if it's Ukraine or something else, I'm going to lose money. Right. You know? Well, right. first of all, it's a temporary decline, as you like to point out. Words are powerful. We don't use the word loss. We use, you know, it's a temporary decline. But people don't focus on the fact that, well, if you're out of the market and then it goes up a whole bunch and never comes back for you to get back in, you know, where you got out, that's Mm -hmm. a very real possibility. That is a permanent loss of money. It doesn't feel like it. You you don't see your balance decline, but you did. It's opportunity cost. It's money that you didn't earn that you should have. and, And it interrupts the power of compounding, right? And the rule, number one rule of investing is interrupt compounding as infrequently as possible. And so and it also sets up a pressure cooker. If I know that the only way I'm going to live the life I want to live over the next three decades of my life in retirement or is if 50 or 60 or 70% of my portfolio are going to be invested in the great companies of America instead of predictable bond returns, well, you know, it's, you just you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit on the inflation thing. But one thing I just wanted to mention is I've also had some questions, not just from a broad standpoint, you know, how does inflation impact stock returns? But, well, I've heard, you know, commodities do well during periods of high inflation or real estate or, you know, fill in the blank, certain asset class, value stocks when interest rates are going up or something like that. And Dimensional looked at that, too, in a separate study that was, you know, more for professional like use because it was much more more technical but basically the takeaway was that you couldn't draw a very strong conclusion there wasn't a super high correlation between any specific asset class and inflation either and the exception was there was a little bit higher correlation with um, or a fairly high correlation with like energy stocks or commodities but they're so volatile that they're they're still not a very effective inflation hedge in practice because there are periods where you can have inflation and then have poor commodity returns. Yeah, why would you want to include? So the thing that investors don't like are the fluctuation of their returns, right? Some people call it volatility. I just call it fluctuation. And so why would you hedge inflation? The long-term expected return of inflation is about 3%, plus or minus 1%. One, you know, that's that kind of the standard deviation. Why would you include an asset class that has annual volatility or fluctuations of 35 40 or 50%? in your portfolio, I mean, that can only make your portfolio uh, more volatile. Uh, I understand from a diversi- diversification theory, it might over the long run uh, make it less volatile, but you're still, you're injecting a very high volatility beast to try to cre- create control something or to hedge something that has very low volatility. So yeah, I mean, the, and the reason I bring that up is I, I've had some people ask me about that and say, well, should we be doing this? Should we be investing more of our money in real estate or commodities or whatever it is? And that just tells me that there are probably people out there that are considering these things. And I would say it's just just in general, it's not a good idea to shift your asset allocation, Mm -hmm. particularly your sub-asset allocation, based on any sort of forecast or current event. You know, at the end of the day, you want to stay diversified. You had your initial allocation for a reason. Hopefully it was aligned with your long-term goals and you should stick with that. Yeah. All right. I have a text that says bonds are included in a portfolio for diversification, but we see stagnant bond returns as stocks have declined. Recently, bonds and stocks returns appear to be correlated. Any thoughts about the VIX? Well, we'll take the last part last. Uh, 
what say you guys? I'm not so sure that, <laughs> that there's any study that shows that stocks and bonds are highly correlated, but they can be correlated. Look, you can, have, you can have different asset classes that have very low correlation over long periods of time, but have one-to-one correlation, you know, in a panic, for example. I think, I think I people think misunderstand diversification, too. So I would hear similar things in 2008, like, well, diversification didn't work because everything was down. It's like, yes, but not down by the same amount. Obviously, people who owned just financial stocks in 2008 got crushed way harder than people who were globally diversified. Um, and likewise, long-term treasuries had positive returns. And so uh, the really recent you know, market environment was, yes, we've had a pullback in the stock market, plus interest rates have risen a little bit, which has caused bond prices to drop. Right. So yes, both have gone down lately because of those reasons. But if you look, okay, over my lifetime, do these things have a high correlation? Not really, because bonds, as long as you're owning short-term high-quality bonds, are, I just think of them as being very stable. But it doesn't mean that they're going to have positive returns when stocks have negative returns. Sometimes it works out that way because you'll have interest rate cuts when the stock market's doing particularly poorly. But that's not always the case. I assure you that if the stock market falls 30% next week, your bond prices are going to get a lot better because they'll have been forced to try to reduce interest rates further. Uh, so yeah, there's no, there's nothing perfect out there. I can understand the text though. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought diversification was supposed to protect me from these environments. Well, it is. If you're in high quality short-term bonds, you probably aren't down one percent year to date. Okay, where the broad U.S. market is down nine or ten, probably ten today, through today. So. It's hard, hard for me to suggest that that diversification, because why, why did you put bonds in your portfolio to begin with? Well, probably because you don't want 100% of your portfolio in stocks or the great companies of America and the world, because most people just would blow their, they'd blow their, you know, their brains would explode. They couldn't handle it. So we have to default and say, well, this money, we have to have some money that isn't p- impacted during all the craziness. Well, that's where bonds, short-term, high-quality bonds fit in. And they're the stabilizer to the portfolio. Well, it's hard for me to suggest just because maybe a short-term bond fund's down 1% for the year that that's not stable. It's not dollar for dollar, but it's highly stable. So I think, I think in reality, this diversification idea between stocks and bonds is working beautifully. I mean, this is a textbook case of why you diversify and the benefits of that diversification. And I think it becomes more obvious if you just take a more extreme example, like where 2008, the stock market falls 50-plus percent, 57. and bonds are relatively stable during that. And intermediate term, treasuries were up 10 or 15%. Exactly. So in that scenario, you can see, okay, clearly they're providing a diversification benefit and just a practical benefit, as Ryan has talked about earlier today and you talked about, just for retirees who need to take withdrawals. They're going to be that source of money that you can withdraw from during those But look at all the people that are getting screwed over over the last year or two, maybe longer. Uh, Savers that put money in CDs and, you know, because they like, they like that surety that, okay, my $100,000 CD at the end of the year, they're going to give me a check back that says $100,000 plus I've earned some interest. Okay, well, they lost six or seven percent over the last year, probably five percent the year before. Uh, think about people that chose fixed annuities as their primary uh, income stream. Okay, well, they're probably have already lost ten or twelve percent of their purchasing power on the front end of retirement. Doesn't make them bad. Doesn't mean you shouldn't buy these things. I'm talking about how these policies are hurting people, and then now inflation. You know, we we have these politicians on both sides that are always just talking about how they want to help the people. Who do you think realistically is getting screwed over the most today with inflation? It's the people that have the lower incomes, the hardworking people of America that are out there actually doing their jobs. They're the ones that are absolutely can get screwed over because of this bad po- political Federal Reserve policy. There you go. I'll stop. <laughs> Dave, and Ryan are, Dave and Ryan are looking at me like, oh, oh he's, he's going to get rolling here. Or you're supposed to come back happy and relaxed after I two, am. two weeks of that's sun. Right. After two weeks of vacation, I started looking at the data, and I was hoping it would improve, and the policies have not improved. Go ahead, Fred. Yeah. So Paul, Paul, think back a year. Uh, it seems like uh, you know, a, yeah. a millennium ago, but uh, we were talking about can the Fed uh, figure out a way to get the uh, uh, inflation rate up to 2%. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you're right. It, it wasn't... 
it was just a year ago we were talking about how uh, we're actually in a situation of uh, a deflation to, uh, to to many people many people's minds. So you can't change your policies every uh, your investment policies every uh, six months based on what's happening or or go back several years. Who's worrying about the Greek? Uh, financial crisis now. I mean, things come and go, and and you can't uh, retool your your portfolio based on every one of these transitory kinds of of uh, events that occur. Oh, I agree. Uh, I, I'm certainly not arguing for a change of portfolio strategy. I'm I'm thinking. No, more no, of, I'm saying you're, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. At the same time, I think that's great perspective to think about. Really, two years ago, we probably would have prayed for some inflation. And uh, it, it maybe maybe we do you think Fred? Do you think it's easy to be an armchair quarterback like I'm being today and criticize the Federal Reserve policy? You know, just assuming that these people are a lot smarter than I am and they should know better as to not, you know, they should balance the money supply and demand a little better, or or maybe during these types of events that's impossible. Right. I think it's not so much smarter; it's more the. Uh the uh, various pressures that uh, you and I can say whatever we want to say, and uh, that's it. We don't have to worry about uh, getting reappointed or whatever. But if you're in a, a position of authority like the Federal Reserve Board, uh, you have to worry about what you'd like to do and what you can do based on the political reality. So, again, I think it's not so much uh, smartness. It's more uh, uh, the, the kind of... Uh, environment they operate in and all the constraints they have to deal with well in the long term i certainly have not lost any of my optimism that's for sure i mean i i spoke of my first 62 years on the planet and i think that's still suggests that optimism is the only worldview that squares with the facts and it's real easy to spin on a day-to-day basis but while i might talk like i'm spinning today guys i'm we've certainly i've haven't articulated i haven't asked you guys to change policy but Talk about the newly minted retiree guy, uh, person that walks in. Um, has your advice on the front end of retirement for a newly minted retiree changed at all? Or are you, you still, uh, are you dollar cost averaging into the equity exposure? Are you, you know, are you, are you chain, tinkering with allocations? I, I'm trying to think. I, I don't think really anything's materially changed. The dollar cost averaging decision always just is kind of a case by case basis. Right. It's not, it's never going to, for me, it's never going to be based on market valuations or anything like that. It's can't, you know, where it really be, becomes an issue is if someone has like a lump sum pension. Right. So they're not really used to having their money invested and it's, right. you know, it might have several hundred thousand dollars of a rollover. And they're just really nervous about investing it all at once. Well, then in that case, I think it makes sense to dollar cost average um, just to avoid, you know, putting it all in, seeing the market decline and then panicking and selling. Sometimes it's the lesser of two evils to dollar cost average. But if someone has, you know, a 401k that's been invested, you know, all along the way and they're kind of used to that, they've seen the fluctuations, the ups and downs in the market and don't express major concern. Um, or I don't get the vibe that they're going to be a type of the type of person that's going to panic if we get a decline. I'm still investing it according to the target allocation all at once. A lot of times it helps too that I'm reducing the stock allocation in those instances because people right. Might, you mean they, they prior to retiring and coming in the door, they might have had eighty cents of every dollar invested in the stock market, and maybe we're suggesting forty or fifty or sixty percent. So we're actually exactly. reducing their overall. Uh, which is probably uh, very important for most people to do that on the front end of retirement. Yeah, so fundamentally nothing's changed. And then I just look at um, the reality that all financial plans are going to change and we're going to make adjustments. And that may be because we have high inflation. It may be because the client has unforeseen expenses. It could be uh, because we have poor stock returns. Or, 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 Or on the other side, good returns, and then we can increase spending. Exactly. So I just always look at these things like, it's not that we change the portfolio to try to, uh, you know, position ourselves in the most optimal right. way because we think inflation is going to be higher or returns are going to be a certain way. It's we're going to make adjustments based on the returns or, or tax changes or whatever changes and unforeseen events come along. We're going to adapt to them. And that makes sense because nothing has really fundamentally changed. If if you have always gone into retirement as an advisor, assuming bad stuff is built in. Bad stuff can and likely will happen. 
though we can never be sure. But if that's your mentality of, look, we're going to prepare for war, but pray for peace, we've basically discounted all those ugly things that could happen, at least you know, well, there's the old saying, risk is when you think you thought of everything, <laughs> then it's what's left over. Um, and so, so you know, the fact that we have some inflation and the markets happens to be down, the broad U.S. market down 10% from its broad, really shouldn't fundamentally change it because we're anticipating much worse than that as a possibility. So that makes sense that you wouldn't change it. And, 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 and we've tested our methodology as far as, you know, taking withdrawals from an investment portfolio through periods of much higher inflation than what we're experiencing now. So I know, you know, I'm confident in the fact that if we do have even higher inflation in the future, we'll be able to deal with that. You know, we just make adjustments where you need to make adjustments. And I think that's the key. Ultimately, as I say, retirement is a giant, if this, then that decision-making process over time. Yep. I think, you know, we, we talk about this immediate snapshot in time today, should you choose to make any changes to how you're investing today. But at any time, whether you retire today, five years from now, or 20 years from now, there's always going to be some sort of conditions you could hang your your worry hat on saying, maybe I shouldn't invest fully, or maybe I should do something a little bit different because my fears of X, Y, and Z. And I think that's like one of the biggest issues that most maybe like uh, do-it-yourself retirees might face is, can I make that right decision under that point in time? Do I put money in gold because I'm hedging against you know, inflation, for example, something that we don't recommend generally ever? Because um, it all circles back to market timing. Yeah, I'm it, making a forecast. I'm making a prediction. Now we're in the prediction business. In my view, it's always been you're either in the prognostication business or you're in the planning business, but no way are you in both. Yep. And that makes sense. Now, on the shiny uh, object, chasing uh, route i just noticed because i sent you guys this morning a chart of and, and i'm not making fun of her uh, kathy wood that uh, arc exchange traded fund that was shooting the lights out last year was america's darling everybody wanted to be invested in it uh it's f- almost 60 percent off its all-time highs so think about and i've seen this over the last nearly 40 years happen time and time again there's a shiny object it's shooting the lights out it's not very large why it's be building that track record. As soon as the track record gets recognized by everybody, billions and billions of dollars flood into it only to see it decline now 60%. I suspect, though I don't know, it's just my it's just a suspicion. If I went and looked at the data, I bet the average investor in that exchange-traded fund has a pretty significant loss. Well, it's, what is it, a tale as old as time is the saying? Uh, isn't it the Fidelity Magellan Fund and then like Bill Miller's fund right. that outperformed for 15 years? I'm pretty sure they've looked at you know the cash flows into those funds and seen that despite the incredible performance that they had for 10 or 15 year periods, the average investor in the fund over that period lost money because almost all the money right. flooded in towards the tail end after the good performance and then they had very poor performance. In fact, I'll give you an example. During the lost decade between 2000 and 2009, the Wall Street Journal did an article about Ken Hebner's, I forget what the name of the fund now, uh, it was the number one fund over that lost decade. And then they went and looked to see, well, when did all the money come in? And they calculated that the average investor had a loss in the number one fund for the <laughs> 10 year, for the, during the decade of the 10 years. And That's really what we're talking about is how <clears throat> that investor behavior to always, you know, a comparison is the thief of joy, as they say. And so everybody's looking at something that's doing better than what they own. It's usually something that's not diversified, right, by its nature. And, oh, why didn't I get into that? And they want to be in that, you know, after it shot the lights out because that's, you don't know about those great returns until they've happened. And now we all recognize it and we all flood the money in and billions of dollars go in. I mean, I've seen it played over and over again. And that's, of course, why we have constant commitments to asset classes at Rudy Wealth Management. I think you can't help but you can't blame people so much. Their human nature is, well, I don't want to be a part of a losing strategy or a losing team. Here's something that's doing well. Obviously, I'm going to make a change to go well. But yeah, like you say, the the research is pretty conclusive. Most people pour in after the returns have already occurred, and they don't reap those for themselves. Well, it shows up time and time again. In other words, with the diversified portfolio, you're never going to blow anybody out of the gym, but you're never going to get blown out of the gym. It's it's kind of a steady, steady way to go, and it's always you know as I say, diversification works even when you wish it wouldn't, but it's always working. And uh, and, and 
so these are probably stressful times for investors, even though uh, the, the temporary decline that we're under right now is really almost a yawner from an historical perspective. But I think it's, again, it's this combination of these high prints of inflation, shortages, uh, you know, the, the job scene, even though we have strong job scene, but it's kind of this mismatch of needing people and not having enough people all the supply shortages, and then at the same time, you know, geopolitical stuff that's going on. So it would only be natural right now to start questioning, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is my allocation is my allocation designed to address these fears? And they should be. A diversified portfolio should do about as good as, you know, option B is, oh, i got to get into the prediction business. And the returns of that, you know, as the data shows, just probably not a, it's really not a good strategy at all. And you can't, you well, can't well, make a penalty. Go ahead, Fred. Right. I, I just read a, a kind of bitter op-ed piece by a, a 35-year-old who uh, <laughs> said, I haven't made any progress the last uh, 15 years or so to, towards my retirement. So what I'm going to do is to put everything into Bitcoin and, and let it ride. So that was the, the shiny object uh, this year in this case. Well, you can understand the attractiveness to young people of a lot of this technology stuff. Uh, you know, some of it has shot the lights out, and of course, it makes everything else look rather boring. And like, again, I guess, Fred, that always circles back to the theme of my career, I guess, which has always been uh, it's never really an investment issue. It's always an investor behavior issue that determines a person's lifetime outcome of, of success or failure. And it, it's, it's really hard to stay the course. Uh, it turns out to be the problem for people, and, and, and human beings just like to constantly figure out one more way to be wrong. That's just, you know, it's like, hey, I have an idea. And I always think, I, I initially, I always immediately think, oh, great, one more way to be wrong. Well, hopefully I wasn't pessimistic today, guys. <laughs> but we'll be back in a couple of weeks, the second week of March. For, for another Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz, for calling in. And thank you, David Rudy and Ryan Repko, Certified Financial Planner Professionals at Rudy Wealth Management. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.